Well, please take your Bibles again. We'll turn together to Luke's Gospel, chapter 24. Luke's Gospel in the chapter 24. I believe this will be the penultimate sermon on this series in Luke's Gospel. Hard to believe you've come to this point. I do appreciate your patience and your faithfulness in coming under the Word of God, working through all these 24 chapters little by little, uh, piece by piece. And I trust it's been a blessing, an encouragement to your soul. And uh, again, it's given you a, a, a sense, a fullness of all that God reveals to us in the Gospel. But today we're going to look particularly at the verse number 47. That's going to be our focus today where it says, And that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And we'll see that in light of the surrounding verses, but let's buy together and let's ask for God's help as we come today again around his precious word. Let's all buy together. Eternal God, we come before thee. And we are indeed thankful for the revelation of the word that we have. Thank you for this chapter of Luke that again so gloriously outlines the power of Christ in his resurrection. Thank you, O Lord, for the clear evidence we have that our Savior is not dead, he is alive. And in all of our doubts and discouragements, help us to look continually to the glory of his resurrection. He who has that name exalted, the Lord of lords and the King of kings, Jesus, our Redeemer. Help us to worship him again, even as we come around the word. We, we pray the word would be a blessing to our souls, a help in our understanding, a motivation to drive and to stir up our hearts to do that which is pleasing to thee. Oh, Lord, bless the word to each and every hearer. May there be no one here, from the youngest to the oldest, you could leave here and say they have not heard from God today. Oh, Lord, bring, bring the word with power to all of our souls in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. When you consider the gospel narratives and indeed the book of Acts chapter 1, I think you've got to come to the conclusion that the commission, what we know as the Great Commission, was given by Christ on more than one occasion. That it comes in various forms at different times, being repeated little by little in the ears of the fledgling church. You think back to Matthew's gospel in the chapter 28. The events there take place in the mountain. The 11 disciples went away into Galilee into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And they saw him, they worshipped him, and some doubted. And to that group on the mountain it says, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. And so in Matthew's account, Christ gives these instructions, go, disciple, baptize, teach. And kind of fourfold sense of the commission to the church in Matthew's account. In Mark's account, they are sitting at meat. And they, again, are being upbraided for the unbelief and hardness of hearts. Perhaps this event happens in the upper room where the disciples are meeting at this time. And they are struggling, according to Mark, to believe that he was risen indeed. And in that context, it says to them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. 
Again, of course, you see the parallels with Matthew's account, but there are some distinctive differences. Over in Acts chapter 1, we have another account, and here it is in light of the ascension just before the ascension of Christ. You have there in the verse number 9, it says, And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up. And what did he speak? Well, verse number 8, Ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Again, we're seeing uh, some commonality here, of course, between the accounts that we have in in Matthew and also the account that we have in our own text in verse number uh, 40 or verse number 48 of Luke's Gospel, chapter 24. You're witnesses of these things. Again, going back, beginning at Jerusalem. And what are they going to do? They're going to preach repentance and remission of sins. So you're seeing just a flavor, a, a nuance of the varieties of ways in which Christ has given the disciples this commission to go into all the world. Undoubtedly, these texts are very, very challenging. Not this time in understanding. They are easy to understand, but they are difficult to obey. And the challenge came in the obedience to the apostles, yes, but through the apostles as they set this pattern to every church and every age. We are to go, not stay. We are to preach Christ, not... There are several things you could put after that. Not self, not church, not denominationalism. We are to preach Christ to the world into which we go. We must aim at conformity to God's will, not simply confessions. We are to teach them, baptize them, teach them to do all that Christ commanded. The aim of evangelism is not just people saying, yes, I'm saved now, but seeing people discipled and following Christ, doing what He commands. These are challenges in every age, and they challenge us, and I have, I have no shame in repeating them again in your hearing today. This template for the apostles is to mark the church in every generation. See, when these things are not practiced, the church is less than healthy. Whenever the church fails to obey these instructions... It is a mark of a church that is suffering from some form of spiritual malady. It is a sick church. It is a church that stays in its own confines and does nothing to bring the gospel to a lost world. But the challenge of this instruction might crush us in despair unless we are able to see the underlying encouragements in the Lord's words. He's telling us to take the good news to the nations and we may naturally respond, I can't do that. There's no way I can do that. It's impossible. Now, we say that in our generation. How do you think the disciples felt at this time? A few days earlier, they can barely believe what they're hearing and what they're seeing regarding Christ. They're hiding. They're locking doors. They're living in fear and trembling of the authority around them. And they're told, oh, by the way, it's time for you to get out of this room and go into all the worlds. Really? You've got to go back to that group. Think about how they must have felt and how they must have reasoned in their own minds. 
So what is it that enables them to go out? Well, yes, it is their conviction. The conviction that they have regarding the resurrection of Christ. They believe these things to be true, and they understand their profound significance. I've said that in recent studies. But there are also things, reasons here, whereby they should expect success in global evangelism. And so today, before I come to the resolve to be faithful, the second heading today, I want to begin with these reasons whereby we should expect success in global evangelism. Why should they expect success? And why should we still expect success today in the area of global evangelism? Well, first of all, we should expect success because success is guaranteed. Yes, it is guaranteed as the Scriptures must be fulfilled. Look what it says in verse 46. Here again, we're brought into a time when Christ is declaring the name of God in the midst of the brethren. And we find him saying, he's opening their understanding, verse number 45. He's teaching them those things written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. And what is written, verse 46, it is written, and thus it behoved Christ, one, to suffer, two, to rise from the dead, and three, that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. What I want you to see here is that the Old Testament teaches the extension of covenant grace to Gentile nations. Verse 46 says, It is written, i.e., in the Old Testament, that Christ should suffer and rise from the dead. And some people leave it there and then say, Oh, and by the way, it's now going to be preached among all nations. That's not the sense of the text. What the Lord is saying here, it was written in the Old Testament that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in His name among all nations. The Old Testament taught global evangelism. The Old Testament taught the gospel being spread to every nation. Part of the Old Testament. I remember one of my first classes in Bible college I suppose 16 years ago now, there was a class taken by one of our ministers, Reverend Johnson, on missionary principles. And the first part of that course was an exposition of this text, showing to us for several weeks, one hour a week, for several weeks into months, how the Old Testament taught that missions was part of God's purpose from before time. He was showing us that if you're going to involve in missions, understand that missions is not a New Testament idea. And it's not an idea that William Carey brought about. William Carey was a great missionary pioneering Baptist missions, but he did so because he understood it was God's will for the gospel to go to the nations. Because that's been God's purpose from all time. And so, yeah, we spent many weeks going from text to text. I don't have time for that. So I'm going to show you guys an example from each of the three categories of the Old Testament, Moses, the Psalms, and the prophets. So let's begin back in Genesis chapter 22. Moses, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis chapter 22 and the verse number 18. Now this, by the way, I'm just taking this one, but it's a, a reiteration of God's promise to Abraham, initially made in Genesis chapter 12. 
And the verse number three, I will bless them that bless thee and curse them that curse thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. That's the promise. It's reiterated here, Genesis chapter 22, in the verse number 18. Here's the words, and here I'm pointing out to you the idea of all nations here. And in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. It's God confirming his covenant. Abraham, of course, has sacrificed Isaac, and God has said, spare the son, I'll provide the lamb. That gospel foundation, please note, that is not and that is not a matter of minimal significance. In light of the presentation of the gospel, the covenant is reaffirmed that in Abraham's seed shall all nations be blessed. Now, if you're reading Genesis without any extrapolation, you may think, well, Abraham's family were a benefit to the nations around them. Israel benefited the nations. But of course, you know better than that. You know better than to minimize the application in that regard because you and your minds, I trust, know by now that you must turn to Galatians chapter 3. So please do that. Turn to Galatians chapter 3 because here we will see that the Lord himself teaches us. The Lord himself teaches that Genesis chapter 22 is applied and fulfilled as the word goes into the nation's in the times of the apostles, and continuing until now. It's wonderful. Remember I said your, your frustration, I wonder what the Lord taught in these sermons. Well, here we have another example. Here Paul is revealing to us what was taught to the apostles by Christ himself regarding the Old Testament scriptures. Galatians chapter 3, verse number 8. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen, Again, the reference of the heathen there, of course, Gentiles, not Jews, justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. So then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. How does that refer to Genesis chapter 22? Well, the connection there particularly has to do with blessing in the seed. Look at verse number 13. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. Verse 14, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Then verse number 16, now to Abraham and his seed where the promise is made, he saith not unto seeds as of many, but as of one unto thy seed, which is Christ. Christ in all the scriptures. Christ in Genesis chapter 22. Through Abraham's seed. Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of David. Christ, the one who fulfills all of these covenantal promises. The nations are blessed in Christ. So you could go across to the end of the chapter. Galatians chapter 3 and the verse number 26. For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many as you have been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Moses taught 
In Genesis chapter 22, as he recorded the events regarding Abraham, Moses taught the certainty of global evangelistic success. The scriptures taught it. Paul sees this is how it's fulfilled. We have the blessings. Gentiles, people like you and me, we are brought into these blessings through faith in Christ Jesus. Because Christ secures the covenant of promises. That's example number one from Moses. What about the Psalter then? We'll turn to the Psalm 67. Again, there are several Psalms we could turn to. Let's actually go back one. Let's go back to the Psalm 22. Just to see a connection from this morning's communion services in the bulletin as a memory verse for today. Remember Psalm 22, dealing with the Lord's sufferings, and we saw today His resurrection. This this psalm, by the way, itself fulfills all that Christ says in this instruction. Death, resurrection. And here again you have in the verse number 27, all the ends of the world shall remember and turn unto the Lord, and all the kindreds of the nations shall worship before thee, for the kingdom is the Lord's, and he is the governor among the nations. You see the promise here? In light of the Lord's death and resurrection, the gospel to all the nations... Why would you want to go to Nepal or Liberia or Uganda? Why would you want to go out as a missionary? What hope do you have of success? Because the scriptures must be fulfilled. They cannot fail to be fulfilled. Moses, Genesis 22, now the Psalter. What about Psalm 67? A prayer by the people of God. God be merciful unto us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us. Here's a prayer of the people of God. The prayer of Israel, that they would know blessing. But what is the reason whereby they ask for blessing? That thy way may be known upon earth, by saving health among all nations. Let the people praise thee, O God. Let all the people praise thee. Oh, let the nations be glad and shout for joy. What's the greatest blessing Israel ever knew? Was it the harvests? Was that the greatest blessing? Was it the land and extension? Was the greatest blessing known in Solomon's days when the land went so far out? What a kingdom, a kingdom of peace and prosperity. Was that the greatest blessing then? You know. The greatest blessing was Messiah coming. Christ coming, God incarnate coming in human flesh. That he would die for our sins. So they're praying, God be merciful and doesn't bless us. Messiah comes, that thy way may be known upon earth, thy saving health among all nations. What a wonderful reference that is to the gospel. Do you ever think of this? The gospel is God's saving health. Health for sick sinners. Health that saves, health that keeps, health sustains. You know, we're sick outside of Christ. We're only healthy in Christ. And the gospel goes to all nations. Well, what were the prophets then? Turn to Isaiah, please. Again, I'm being selective. It could have gone to Jeremiah. could have gone to Malachi. could have gone to Hosea. There are several references in the prophets, again, that indicate the fact that the gospel is going to all nations. Isaiah chapter 60, verse number 1. Arise, shine, for the light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon thee. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness of the people. But the Lord shall arise upon thee, and his glory shall be seen upon thee, and the Gentiles shall come to thy light. 
gives a reference to the, to the glory of Christ as Messiah comes and Gentiles come to the light. Again, in that theme, you turn across to chapter 65, where it says there, I am sought of them that asked not for me. I am found of them that sought me not. That's quoted by Paul in Romans chapter 10 with regards to the gathering of the Gentiles. Israel, they're stiff-necked, they're hard-hearted, they refuse the gospel. But God turns to a people that ask not for him. The Gentile nations, similar language used back in Isaiah 55 in the verse number 5. Behold, thou callest a nation that thou knowest not, and nations that knew not thee shall run into thee because of the Lord thy God. The Gentile nations running hurriedly to get to the grace that's found in Christ Jesus. What a picture it is of what? Of the success of global evangelism. Why are we so downhearted? Why are we so doubting? Why, are we, why do we believe that we'll, that we'll see nothing accomplished for Christ in our day? Christ will not fail. His word cannot fail. Now, when I say success, how do you measure success in global evangelism? The gospel going to each and every one of Christ's elect. None lost, none ever ever lost without hearing the gospel. They hear the gospel, they believe the gospel, and they're saved. That is our confidence. That's our expectation. The Scriptures predicted Christ's death. Did it happen? Yes. The Scriptures predict His resurrection. Did that happen? Yes. The Scriptures predict the global extension of the gospel. Does that happen? Yes. Praise God that happens. Secondly, success is guaranteed as salvation must be applied. Salvation must be applied. Now, these terms, I trust, are familiar to you. Salvation has been accomplished by Christ. He's achieved salvation. The work is done by His death and by His resurrection. But God has not left, left anything undone. You see, the salvation that is accomplished is applied as sinners personally believe the gospel. What Christ has done is applied in an individual's heart as they come to faith in Christ Jesus. And success is guaranteed in evangelism as the plan of redemption itself requires the preaching of the gospel. I hope you heard that right. In God's purpose, the plan of redemption requires the preaching of the gospel if it is to succeed. There must be gospel preaching. And as Christ cannot fail to save all those given to him, then global missions will not fail. The gospel will be preached. Cannot fail. Christ cannot fail. You see, look what it says in Luke 24 again. And how it's described... I've given you the premise here in the sense of God's purpose. But the, the actual text says it itself, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in His name. Now here we've got to draw a connection. It does not say that His death and resurrection should be preached in His name. It doesn't say that here. And that's significant. Now, it's not suggesting for a second that that's not what is to be preached. Remission is preached 
in his name. And so Paul, he preaches Christ crucified. But listen to how it's explained in the commission. That as we go forward into the world, we preach about Christ's death and about his resurrection. We preach the historical facts of the gospel. But evangelists are not simply recounting events. They are offering a promise of God. They go into all the world, not simply saying, Christ Jesus came into the world, died and rose again, and stop there. The evangelist goes into all the world and they say, Christ died and rose again. And because of that, you guilty sinner with a wicked conscience, you can know forgiveness of sins. There's the application in the preaching. There's the offer of the gospel. The sinners say, believe in Christ, trust in Christ, turn from sin, and you can know your sins forgiven. That is God's plan. Remission speaks of forgiveness. Yes, not forgiveness without gospel realities, not forgiveness in God's kind of overlooking sin, but gospel forgiveness in Christ's name because of his person and his work. You see, turn across to Acts chapter 10, please. Again, I want you to see how the, the disciples understood this. They grasped this. They were, they were sharp in these regards by the help of the Spirit of God. Acts chapter 10, Peter's sermon. He's describing the gospel again in Cornelius' house. Acts chapter 10, the verse number 43, it says, To him, that is to Christ, give all the prophets witness that through his name, whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins. The Old Testament, again, they, 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 they taught this matter that remission of sins came through Christ. But notice it says in verse 42, And he commanded us to preach unto the people, to testify that he was judged of quick and dead, and to testify, if you like, to the Lord and to the people of God, that the prophets bear witness that remission of sins is possible for those who believe in his name. What a hope that the guilty conscience can be cleansed and find peace in Christ alone. You know, if you're here in the house of God today and you know your conscience is not right with God, you know that you're a sinner in God's sight, and you, you know that when you go to bed at night, there is this unsettledness in your spirit. If your conscience is accusing you, the only way to find peace for your conscience is through the gospel of Christ Jesus. This world will offer you all manner of false options. Placebos, if you like things. Try this, this will work. Try this, this will work. None of it works. Conscience is only dealt with in the gospel. Then you turn to Acts chapter 13. Acts 13, the verse number 38. Again, here now Paul, in a similar fashion, being known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. See the connection again? That's the point I'm making right now. There's a connection. Christ has done the work. The promise is here. The promise is of forgiveness. Christ's work, forgiveness, was the link? Preaching. It's through the preaching of the gospel that sinners come to hear the promise and then believe the promise. It all comes together, therefore, Again, Christ cannot fail to save all those given to him, and thus global missions will not fail. Thirdly, and finally, at least under this heading, 
You have success guaranteed because the Spirit of God will be provided. Again, very quickly back to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, we have a promise here. The Lord has given this instruction. You're going to be witnesses of these things. And then verse 49, And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. We, we know what that promise is. It's not explicitly mentioned here in Luke 24. But Luke, remember, this is volume 1 of Luke's gospel. Volume 2 is the book of Acts. And so there's a very direct link. Acts chapter 1 and the verse number 4. You have this promise again related. And being assembled together with them, commanded them they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, you've heard of me, for John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. The promise of the Father is the promise of the Spirit of God. And so this band of believers, they're sitting in fear and trembling. They're wondering, how can we accomplish the will of God? How can we do Christ's commands? <sighs> The Spirit of God is going to be yours. And so you read Mark chapter 16 and you get the words, they went forth, preached everywhere, the Lord working with them. But how does the Lord work with them? He does so in and through the power of the Spirit of God. Related, again initially, then realized in the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, the Spirit of God comes upon them. Verse number 4, they're all filled with the Holy Ghost. And Peter explains that, verse number 32 that they have received the promise of the Father. Verse 33, Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, He has shed forth this which ye now see and hear, the promise of the Spirit of God poured out upon the church. That which, of course, is also repeated. Acts 4, and the verse number 31, it's not, not a once and for all thing. Oh yes, Pentecost, once and for all, that initial outpouring of the Spirit of God for the church in every age depends upon the Spirit of God. Verse 31 of chapter 4, And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they spake the Word of God with boldness. So you see, that's why the gospel succeeds. God's divine plan, God's divine accomplishment operating in the power of God's Spirit. So do we have reasons to expect success in global evangelism? Oh, so many reasons. I'm only drawing those that come from Luke 24. So we pray for evangelism, we pray for missions, we do all of these things. And we should do so expecting success in these things. Well, let me close then by asking you to resolve to be faithful in global evangelism. I said at the start, this challenge is, is very significant. It's, it's, it's a hard challenge. It comes with great weight upon our conscience. But we must resolve, as the New Testament church, we must resolve to be faithful in global evangelism. This must be our resolution each and every day. The continuation of the commission. Four very simple thoughts. We must resolve to be faithful in the moving required. Here, of course, drawing from the word go, go. Let me ask you a question. Why do you always assume that the command to go is for someone else? 
It's generally what happens, isn't it? You get a missionary address, you get an evangelistic challenge in terms of going into all the world, and your thought is, well, I couldn't be called to do that. That's going to be someone else's job. We understand that not everybody's called to be a missionary or a, a gospel minister. And by the way, this application to go begins in Jerusalem. And so the going does not necessarily imply going across the world or overseas. It's just a simple sense of going into the world with the gospel. And we say, well, that's not my gifts, that's not my calling. Or perhaps, but for some of you, maybe it is. And you're quick to pray for others. Lord, send so-and-so. They'd be really good at that job. And you're slow to see how it may indeed apply to you personally and directly. But however, I do acknowledge that not everyone will go in the sense of leaving perhaps an employment or perhaps leaving home and family. Not everyone will do that. I understand that. But that does not remove our responsibility as a church to be involved in these matters. And so as a church, it is our duty, please be clear, it is our duty to encourage missions. That is our responsibility. That each and every one of you have a duty to encourage missionaries and missions in and through the church. You will do so by supporting the training of missionaries. By being involved in many ways to support the training of men and women who will go and send the gospel to all the world that you'll be involved in the church to send out missionaries, to support them financially and to pray for them diligently. It's all part of your resolve. And if that is not in your heart, in some way, there's a major problem. If you have no heart for missions, locally or globally, there's a significant issue in your soul. It's just so fundamental to what it is to be a New Testament Christian. So the moving, the message, resolve be faithful as to the message, the message objectively, which is about Christ Jesus. I've said this already, I'm not going to repeat it all. It is remission of sins in his name. It is faithful to Christ, his person and his work. You know, sometimes there is a thought that it doesn't, it doesn't matter if doctrine is accurate in missions. That was a dreadful thought. The, the, the idea being that, well, we, 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 want, we want our theologians and our, and our Bible experts to be, to be teaching in our home churches. But we, we can send others out to missions who, who may not be quite so gifted in all the doctrinal matters. You know, the gospel, it goes bad in missions. There's a catalogue of history of the gospel being compromised in the mission field. And so as you're praying for missionaries, if you're praying for the presbytery in Nepal, or the work in Liberia, or the work in Uganda, or Australia, or whatever, pray diligently, God, keep the men faithful to the Word. That they be strict in the Scriptures, careful in understanding all these matters. They wouldn't compromise for the sake of convenience. Oh, this culture doesn't know. They're not so clear on the matter of substitutionary atonement. It's a very foreign concept. It is in our language as well. We need for missionaries to be faithful regarding the message of Christ. But also regarding not just the objective message, 
Christ and all the scriptures, but also the subject of message. Look what it says, verse 47. What is the message? And that repentance should be preached in his name. We live in a time when repentance is looked upon with some degree of suspicion. There are some in the broader evangelical world, and they suggest, well, repentance sounds like a work. We should preach faith, but not repentance. And some suggest that's just the way it should be, and it's all about trusting in Christ, not turning from sin. But of course, repentance and faith can be used interchangeably. Sometimes, simply repentance is used. Other times, simply faith is used because they are so related, you cannot get one without the other. You can use either word and mean both on every occasion. You see, you cannot trust Christ without forsaking sin, and you will not forsake sin without trusting Christ. You see, many of us have been raised in the last generation with the concept that we can take Christ in our sin. And yes, we do take Christ in our sin. But we so hate sin, we will not stay in our sin. It's a false gospel that suggests that you can be saved and still have your sin. You forsake your sin, you turn from your sin, you repent of your sin, and you trust in Christ Jesus. That is the message that we must preach. Faithful to the message. Thirdly, very quickly, faithful to the means. Again, the word is used there, verse 47, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached. There's the means. The means of evangelism is the preaching of the gospel. The word that's used there again is the word for the herald. We've seen it look before, heralding the message, declaring the truth, not inventing truth, but declaring the message that comes from the king. We've got to be faithful to these means. And again, in, in global missions, this has been a challenge. Because missionaries go into nations that often have tremendous social needs. And the church, rightly, as believers, we feel the weight of their difficulties. We, 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 we see poverty, we see difficulties. And what happened again in recent generations is that some mission organizations got distracted and they became more, uh, more focused on social enterprise and less on preaching the gospel. You see, what is forgotten is that you will do people the most good when you offer them Christ and their hearts are changed. That is when you'll do the most good, not just eternally, but also temporally. We don't close our blind, we don't make a blind, we don't turn a blind eye to the suffering. We are compassionate to those of the household of faith and indeed to all men. But the focus of evangelism, the focus of missions, must first and foremost be the preaching of the gospel. Offering Christ. That is true here. As much as it must be true in the nations of the world. Fourthly, the manner. We must be faithful to the manner of our evangelism. And here by manner, I simply mean we must be faithful in terms of our humble dependence upon the Spirit of God. It is a terrible thing for churches to promote missions, and yet never prayer meetings for missionaries. That's true in several large mainstream mission organizations where churches are involved in missions, but there is never a prayer meeting to pray for the missionaries. 
See, that doesn't make any sense. Faithfulness involves realizing that the only way that we will know success in missions is by the power of the Spirit of God upon the work. So please, stay for lunch. And then let's pray together for these things. Let's seek God's face for our missionaries, realizing again that in the terms of Luke 24, there is no hope without the promise of the Father being poured out upon our missions and upon our ministers. That is where we must go. And so what you're seeing here in these words as Christ opens the Scriptures and the disciples hearing, what you're seeing here again is God's eternal plan for the salvation of sinners from every nation through Christ and Christ alone. That is the bedrock of our faith. God's plan is to bring people from every kindred and tribe around the throne of the Lamb, the Lamb that was slain, that we might worship God together. Neither Jew nor Greek, bond nor free, male nor female, but all one in Christ, worshiping our Savior. May that indeed be our joy each and every Lord's Day as we seek to glorify our Savior. Let's bow together in prayer. Eternal God and Father, we do humbly again come into thy presence and we're thankful, Lord, we are we're a band of Gentiles. We are part of this promise. We are part of those that have seen this realized in, in our own locality. We are part of the uttermost end of the world. And we thank you, Lord, for your grace. We thank you the scriptures are fulfilled even in this very gathering. The word of God has been fulfilled as we've met together this morning. Thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness. Help us to labor diligently. Help us, O Lord, to be those who would pray for and support our missions. And dear Father, I pray for some in this gathering. O Lord, would you touch the hearts of some, that they would realize that it's not about others, but they would say, here am I, send me. O God, we pray you'd do a work in people's hearts. May we glorify thee together. Thank you for the lunch that we'll have together. Thank you for the food provided for us. Help us to eat and drink to thy glory. And again, we ask, O oh God, that in all things Christ would have the preeminence. Watch over us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.